At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to January's At the Foot of the Cross. Now, we're hurtling towards the end of January, so it's been a while since we've spoken to you. It would probably be ludicrous to say Happy New Year, but the start of the year is always busy. I'll reel off a few things that have happened already. We've had the Holy Land Coordination, the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity, Peace Sunday, Holocaust Memorial Day to come, and Racial Justice Sunday on the 5th of Feb at the start of February. I'm joined by Canon Christopher Thomas, our General Secretary. It's always a busy start to January, isn't it? Yes, always a busy start. There's always plenty of things to do, and especially when we pick up things that maybe were quite a little bit off the agenda before Christmas, as in the slow run-up to Christmas. This year has been particularly busy, uh, not only with all of those things that you um, uh, have mentioned, but the fact that... um, on the last day of last year, our Holy Father Emeritus, Pope Benedict XVI, died. And so the church entered into a period of mourning for him and praying for him. Because as we know, whether you're a pope or a pauper, there is only one thing the church does when somebody dies, and that's to pray for the repose of their soul. And uh, and so we, we've been praying for our Holy Father Emeritus. And uh, I was privileged to accompany Cardinal Nichols to the funeral in Rome. I was very moved, I must say. I mean, obviously... There's a lot of work in that for me as well. It was a very busy time, but actually a time to collect our thoughts, as you say. You know, it is what we do as Catholics and very moving because, of course, we think back to 2010 and that wonderful state papal visit that we had then in September 2010. Yes. Uh, I mean, for me, to sort of look at the two bookends that you just said, the funeral of the Holy Father and then 2010, if you think, take go to the more proximate event, which was the death of the Holy Father, mm. uh, I flew with Cardinal Nichols out to Rome the day before the funeral, and we were privileged to be able to have an hour praying in the presence of the body of the Holy Father in St. Peter's Basilica. And... What struck me was the silence in the place. You know, there was a constant stream of people coming through, gently going up to where the catafalque was, where the Holy Father lay, gently pausing, making the sign of the cross, blowing a kiss, a lot of wonderful sentiment. But it was all done in a very prayerful atmosphere. And there was a chorale to the left and to the right of the catafalque, and, and the, the Cardinal and myself, as you look at the uh, altar in St. Peter's, were on the left-hand side. And we were able to spend an hour there together, praying for the Holy Father, praying for the repose of his soul, thanking God for the gift he was to the church, one of the great theologians of our time in many respects, and also praying for the church, you know, because mm. when the, the Pope dies, whether it's the, you know, the current Pope or the Pope Emeritus, the church is bereft. You know, we've, yeah. we've, lost, we've lost our shepherd. And I think... All of those sentiments sort of came to the fore, even though beforehand, you know, coming out of Christmas into the new year, getting things ready for the the journey, to be able to sit and to just spend that time in quiet prayer was actually a real blessing and and was a moment of recollection. And then afterwards, we went to the Venerable English College in Rome. And uh, in the evening, around about six o'clock, the Cardinal, myself, Bishop Nicholas Hudson, uh, who is the auxiliary here in Westminster, and Monsignor Keith Newton, the ordinary of the personal ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham, celebrated Mass together for the Holy Father in the College Chapel. And each of us shared a particular thought, a memory of our experience of meeting the Holy Father at that time. It was a wonderful way to end the day, having spent the time with the Holy Father in the 
St Peter's itself, and then to come together in a more familiar, homely place, uh, the Venerable English College, and there to offer Mass for the repose of his soul. I'm glad you mentioned the lying in state. It was it was beautiful from what I saw, and obviously our photographer Martin was there, so I I got to sort of feel the day somewhat through through the camera lens. What we'll do now is we'll just have a little listen to Cardinal Vincent Nichols' reflection from that time. It was a very simple time. What was impressive was the movement of people as they came up the whole length of the Isle of St Peter's and paused ever so slightly in front of the catafalque where the body of the Pope was visible. Everybody did the same thing. They made the sign of the cross, they whispered a prayer and tried to take a picture with their phone. And the stewards who were there saying, please move on, please don't stop. I believe something like 160,000 or more people have passed through the Basilica, paying their respects and praying for Pope Benedict. And that, to me, is an expression of how much he was loved. I spent a lot of the time reflecting on my association with Pope Benedict and what I loved and appreciated about him. In a way, it was quite difficult to come away. There was a draw. I felt pulled to stay. But then, eventually, I had to leave. It was very precious time. So very profoundly moving, of course. Now, the one thing I did want to ask you, we had obviously the Queen's lying in state in 2022. And it it obviously struck me that we're actually seeing the body of Pope Emeritus Benedict. And I found it almost took my breath away. I found that very moving. But it is a a uniquely Catholic thing to do in a certain sense, isn't it? Yes. And, and, you know, uh, all of the popes before him have lay in state in that manner. Um, It's a very moving thing. Dressed in the uh, red chasuble of an apostle as the successor of Peter, with a lovely rosary in his hand, I noticed. Mm. Deep devotion to our Blessed Lady. It was really quite a, a, a very moving thing. But there was something also which which took my breath away in some respects, and that was on the day of the funeral itself. I got up early and um, I had a look uh, on my on my iPad of uh, what was happening over in uh, in the Vatican, and I could hardly see the basilica. The fog was so low, and I I lived in Rome for six years, mm. and I can't remember a heavy fog like that. And it was cold, you know, it was a cold day. So uh, we went over to the basilica, the cardinal, myself, uh, uh, Bishop Hudson. I took my place with the concelebrants and at that point, which would have been around about nine o'clock, you still couldn't see the top of the basilica. Wow. The, 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 the fog was still low. And then they brought the, the body of the Holy Father out in the coffin and laid it on the sagrato, on the churchyard as they call it. And slowly during the mass, the fog began to lift. It added to the profundity of the prayer, really. I'd never been at a papal funeral. I mean, in 2005, when our Holy Father, Pope St. John Paul died, I was back in the parish. So I'd never been at a papal funeral. And there was a simplicity to it. What reminded me of the funeral rites of Her Majesty the Queen uh, when she died was the fact that at the end of the day, we are placed in our coffins in front of an altar, which is the symbol of God, and those around us pray for God's mercy on us. And whether you're the Queen, whether you're the Pope, or, you know, hopefully when I die, there'll be somebody there to pray for me as well. Uh, and and mm. that really was what took my breath away. And we had, a, they said there was about 60,000 people in the square that day. 
And we were there for one purpose, and that was to pray for the Holy Father, to pray that the Lord would have mercy on his soul and that he would welcome him into the courts of the just. And that mist, that fog, sort of added to it because it was as if, as it the fog lifted through the morning, through the Mass, it was as if our prayers were going up and taking the fog with it. You know, it, it, it's just a personal reflection. It all tied in with the simplicity of the Mass, the beauty of that simplicity in many respects. At the end, when the coffin was raised onto the shoulders of the, the bearers and taken back into the basilica, there was a round of applause, which maybe not quite what we do in England and Wales, but certainly was heartfelt, you know, in thanksgiving for the life of the man who we had just prayed for. Simple gratitude, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And again, let's have just a, a little snippet of what Cardinal Nichols had to say about the funeral. In one way, it was a very straightforward celebration of a funeral mass, as would take place at the death of any Catholic in any parish church. And yet, in another way, it was a uniquely historical event and an event of great emotional depth and stature. It also was a moment in which, for me certainly, there was a heightened sense of loss. For me, a sense of my own sadness that Benedict is no longer with us in person. And yet at the same time, the ceremony was unshakable expression of faith and trust in the promises of Jesus. So we had both sadness and hope. We had the grief of loss and the certainty of faith. But actually, one other thing, Canon Chris, that struck me was that actually it wasn't a particularly long funeral. No, no, it was. It it had all of the elements in there that uh, that that you would have at any funeral. But no, it wasn't long, and and uh, uh, but it was prayerful. Um, I mean, I've been to many papal liturgies in in the square. And for me, that really was, it was probably what the most prayerful I'd been to because they can be a little bit of a, of a melee, but you know, it was, it was a really prayerful experience. And I was thinking to go to the other bookend of the, mm. the 2010 visit, you know, what was significant about that for me? Well, there were two things. The first was the privilege I had of celebrating in Westminster Cathedral when the Holy Father came and celebrated the Mass on the Saturday morning in Westminster Cathedral. It was a real privilege and uh, by chance, I was sat next to my dear friend, Monsignor Tom McGovern, who was my first parish priest. We, we this little group of us from Nottingham, had come down to London for that, and, and we ended up on the front row. I remember whispering to him as the processions were coming, and I feel a bit exposed, stood here. And he looked down at me and whispered back, try and look holy, <laughs> <laughs> which is very indicative of Tom's wonderful sense of humour. But the pomp and the majesty of that mass was beautiful. And then, in, you know, when, when you look at that compared with the papal mass, you then have the sublime music of, of William Byrd, uh, of James mm. Macmillan's great 2S Petrus as, uh, as he came into the church. And then the, the wonderful segue from that 2S Petrus into the plain chant. And it just took my breath away again, you know. And, and the way that the Holy Father presided at the mass was so beautiful, very measured, very prayerful. And I remember going back to the parish to say the evening mass on that Saturday and people in the parish saying, oh, I saw you at the, at the cathedral this morning on the highlights. And, and I was able to relay to them the great joy of actually being in this land with the presence of the Holy Father, the, the successor of Peter. Absolutely wonderful. Um, and wasn't it a great antidote to all the God's Rottweiler business that oh, yes. was perpetuated yeah, somewhat ahead of the visit? He, yeah. he came across, and particularly that 
processing in yes. as a very gentle man. Yes. I, I think the hairs on my arms went up as he went past me. I just yeah. felt very, yeah. very at peace. Oh, no, it was remarkable. And uh, I think we have to appreciate that in his previous role as the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, he had a particular job to do. Mm. And when he was elected pope, there was a different job to do. And, you know, the, the thing is, it brings different things out of us. I mean, in a, in a very, very, you know, I don't want to compare myself at all with the pope, but when you're a parish priest in a parish and then you come to the bishop's conference and do effectively a desk job, mm. you know, it's a very different, it draws on different Absolutely. parts of your life yeah. uh, and different skills that you have. So, uh, uh, you know, people, I think, were too caught up in the God's Rottweiler idea when, in fact, what he showed was the pastoral heart of, of a true pastor. And won a lot of people over with oh, that, even those that aren't Catholic. Very much so. And for me, the the other thing of that visit, which, you know, I think is still, if you were to look at the whole corpus of his teaching, of his writings as Pope, the address to parliamentarians in Westminster Hall still stands out yeah. uh, as a wonderful piece of instruction to a liberal democracy on how to act. And particularly that joining together of faith and reason and how they complement each other and how to deny one or the other is actually to make our society very poor. So I mean, the, mm. what he said was very, very beautiful. The world of reason and the world of faith, the world of secular rationality and the world of religious belief need one another and should not be afraid to enter into a profound and ongoing dialogue for the good of our civilization. That's something that we have to remember in our world of today, which is becoming more secular. We are seeing all the time things that are being encroached upon in terms of our religious practice and our freedom to practice those religious beliefs. Yeah. We should be in an ongoing dialogue, a profound and ongoing dialogue, as the Holy Father said at that time, in order to enrich the good of our civilization, the good of our society, the good of human life. When I go back to Rome, the next time I go, I shall go and pray at his tomb and, uh, and thank God for the gift he was to the church. Good for you. Yes, we we'll, we'll, must do that, of course. Now, one thing that is happening in February is Lent. Yes. We Quite an Lent, early yes. Lent. Ash yes. Wednesday, the 22nd. Yes. We've already put three of the Gospels online in audio form and podcast them throughout the seasons, whether that be Advent, whether it be Lent. We've done Acts in Easter. We've uh, read Acts in Easter as well. So four plus Acts. It's the turn of John this time round in Lent. And so reading John in Lent will see us examining and exploring the Gospel of St. John. Hmm. Now, no. you're great with these things, so I'm going to ask that question. You know, what stands out for you when it comes to John? Well, John is unlike the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels because they have the same sort of synopsis. John is very, very different. Who was the author? Well, we think that it was the disciple that Jesus loved. Some people say that that was John the Apostle. We don't know. Biblical scholars far better than me will, will probably have opinions on this. And it was written probably around about the early 80s AD. So it would have been either just, well, just after the destruction of Jerusalem. But the most important thing for me is the purpose. The purpose of John's Gospel is not to present a narrative of Jesus's life like we have in the other Gospels, but to underline who he was, the divinity of John. The author of the Gospel wanted people to come into a deep relationship with the risen Christ. And in order to do that, there was a strengthening of the believing. Now, believing is a really important word because John rarely uses the word faith. 
If you think of faith as something that you have, a static thing, he always uses the word believing. So to quote you the purpose of the gospel, which is right at the end in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the other word that's really important in that purpose statement, which is at the end of the Gospel, is the word sign. And what you can do is you can divide John's Gospel into two sections. There's the Book of Signs, which is the first 12 chapters, and the Book of Glory, which is the chapters subsequent to that, 13 to 21. So in the Book of Signs, what the author is doing is giving us signs that Jesus worked in order to display who he was. So the seven signs, water into wine at Cana of Galilee, the healing of the official son in chapter 4, the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethsaida in chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000, which is the only common miracle in all four Gospels, that's in chapter 6, and the wonderful discourse on the bread of life in chapter 6, the walking on the water at the back end of chapter 6, the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. These are all signs that Jesus worked. And there's all sorts of things alongside each of these signs, dialogues with people, that lead you into this idea of believing. And then you have the book of glory, which is basically one sign, which is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the book of glory has stages as well. So you have the washing of the feet of the disciples, Jesus foretelling his betrayal, the farewell discourse and the giving of that new commandment to love one another as I have loved you, the revelation of the love of the Father and the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then the priestly prayer of Jesus, the consecratory prayer, before he moves to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we have the story of his arrest that we read every Good Friday in the Passion reading of Good Friday. His arrest, his standing before Annas, his standing before Pilate, the crucifixion, his death, the piercing of his side and his burial, and then the resurrection and the appearances at the tomb, and then the appearances to his disciples. And then right at the end, there's that purpose clause, and then an epilogue, which is in chapter 21, where he appears on the shore of uh, the Sea of Tiberias. So that's a rough structure. You have lots of little signs that point towards his divinity, and then you have the great sign, which is the sign of his passion, death and resurrection. And the promises that are bound up in that with the new covenant, the love that the, the father has for all that he has created, his consecration in the priestly prayer, and then his abandonment to the father on the cross. He also uses seven times, specifically seven I am phrases. I am the bread of life in John 6. I am the light of the world in John 8. I am the door in John 10. I am the good shepherd in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life in John 11. And I am the way, the truth and the life in John 14. And then finally in John 15, I am the true vine. He also uses I am on two other occasions. And rather than it's a case of I am something, he just uses the phrase I am. And for us, it's just a phrase, but to Jewish ears, it's the name of God himself. Remember that when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, 
God said, I am the one who is, or I am the one who is and shall be. It's a very, very difficult translation of the Hebrew. It's a, a conundrum in many respects. But he uses I am twice more. The first is when he responds to a complaint by the Pharisees in John 8. He says, to tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. And that would have been very stark in the hearing of the Pharisees. And then the second time, we hear it every Easter on Good Friday in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 18. When the mob come to arrest Jesus, he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And we translate it as, I am he. But in fact, what he's actually saying is, I am. And so he's using the, the name of God. And what's interesting in that particular moment is they fall back. Now, why do they fall back? You know, because he's used the divine name. And the other contrast which John weaves into this gospel, which is so beautiful, is the whole contrast between light and darkness. So the mob comes, the cohort comes, bearing lanterns and torches, artificial light, to the one who is already the light of the world. And remember, Nicodemus goes by night to actually see and speak to Jesus. And then there's that profound moment when Jesus is with the disciples, he's washed their feet. He says that there's somebody on the table who will deny me. It's the one who dips his fingers into the dish, taking the morsel. When he received the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and the phrase is, it was night. So there's again, I'm using the new translation of our lectionary, whereas uh, in our current lection it says night had fallen. It wasn't because it was dark, it was because that was the hour of darkness in the world. So there's lots of wonderful themes in John's Gospel that we have to be aware of. And of course in this year, which is year A, in the liturgical cycle in Lent, on the third, the fourth and the fifth Sundays, we read the three great catechetical Gospels from John's Gospel. We have the woman at the well in John 4 on the third Sunday, the man born blind on the fourth Sunday in John 9, and the raising of Lazarus in John 11 on the fifth Sunday. And that's because we have Jesus is the water of life, he is the light of the world, and he's the resurrection of the life. All themes that come into that sort of catechumenal journey of people who are coming to faith. Well, I tell you what, I'm sure we'll get a reflection for February's podcast on one of those great catechetical pieces. I love the woman at the well, so maybe I'll do something on the woman at the well. Fantastic. Look, thanks very much for that. We're sort of scratching our heads going, we've got this read from start to finish. We need a nice intro. We need some context. We need to understand the gospel ahead of time. So you've given us that. Well, thank, I hope it Thank helps. you very much. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, earlier on, I did mention that the Holy Land coordination was one of those things that starts the year. So why don't we now listen to Bishop Nicholas Hudson's reflection on the time that he spent in Amman, actually, in Jordan. Bishop Nicholas, it's the conclusion of the 2023 Holy Land Coordination here in Amman, Jordan. Tell us about the past week. Well, Liam, it's been one of the biggest coordinations I've known. I've been on about five of them. I was counting at our final meeting this evening. I think we were 35 people sitting in the large circle with bishops representing about 11 different countries. And it's been a fantastic week. It began with going to the ordination of two young priests. Uh, it was really heartwarming to arrive into such a festival atmosphere and see a beautiful full church. And then the next day saw us go down to the River Jordan, to the newly developed baptismal site, the very place of the baptism of our Lord. 
and there was an almost festival atmosphere with the church completely full and the same number of people outside. They reckoned there was something like 6,500, 7,000 people there. And there was this atmosphere that we recognise as well from our own experience in England and Wales, where people are so happy to be able to come together for that sort of celebration when COVID prevented them doing it for so long. Next day we had just as touching an experience, uh, but completely different, when we spent the morning with Iraqi refugees. And I'll say a little bit more about that later on, but that was deeply touching. And then we went out to different parishes, went out to about seven different parishes. So a couple of bishops and a few priests and some of the lay members of the coordination go out to different parishes. And I went about 100 kilometres north of Amman, where we've been based to go and um, celebrate Mass in the parish of Ajlun, and deeply touching it was. The contrast between the 6,500, 7,000 of the day before and the 40 or so people who were in Ajlun was deeply touching, just as precious in their smallness. And I could see how much it meant to them when I said, We'd come, we've come to let you know that you're not forgotten and that because we all belong to the one body of Christ and we will always hold you in our hearts. The next day, the whole coordination went somewhere completely different, uh, sort of third way down the country to a place called Madabar. And there we had a really excellent and informative presentation from Caritas, where they were telling us everything that they've been doing for, for refugees. And then we went into an actual school and we had addresses from different members of the school telling us everything that they've been doing to welcome refugees and also local Jordanian Christian and some Muslims into their school. And then we had one of the most memorable moments from the scriptural, topographical aspect of being in Jordan, which was all together to go up Mount Nebo which is, of course, the place where Moses viewed the promised land for the first time. And then, again, something completely different, we came off the mountain to go and meet with young people from the Patriarchate in Jordan. Patriarchate in Jordan has organised a very effective youth leadership scheme, and we were all very impressed by their presentation of their work and their vision of youth formation for children and young people across the country of Jordan. We had an evening with ambassadors the following day, and then just today, our last full day, it was deeply touching to go and meet children with disabilities and the adults looking after them. And then something of an appropriate climax to, uh, to the week was for us to be able to sit down with the patriarch, Pierre Battista Pizzaballa, and we were able to have a question and answer session with him about life, not just in Jordan, but across the whole Holy Land. And then our last afternoon, some Christian parliamentarians working in Parliament in Amman, but one coming up from Madabar, one based in Amman, came to talk about their vision of, of Christian life here in Jordan. What will be the main messages that you as bishops will be bringing home as a coordination? What I take away from this week in Jordan is that um, Jordan is a land of many contrasts. It's a land of welcome. It's a land of joy. We experience that welcome with the welcome extended towards us. Jordanian people have a real gift for welcome. Their welcome to the refugees is deeply touching. And also they have a deep desire to welcome more pilgrims too. It's a land of joy in the sense that whenever you encounter 
people, you sense the joy in their hearts. There was a real joy about the liturgies we experienced. There's simply a joy of encounter. And also, we found a great deal of joy at the pilgrim sites as well, where they were communicating their joy in all that they've done to develop those places in order they hope to welcome more pilgrims to this part of the Holy Land. But it also struck me as well, from quite early on, as a land of sadness too. There is a lot of sadness in the eyes of the people you meet, understandably in the eyes of the refugees, Iraqi refugees who've been here seven, eight years and have been trying time and time again to get a visa to start a life in another part of the world. And a lot of sadness as well in the parishioners I met in uh, the parish that I went to for that Mass when they were telling me how many of their contemporaries, this was talking to young adults, I asked them, when you think of those you were at school with here in this town and the young people who were your friends, how many of them have gone away to another country? And the three people said, and they're all in their sort of early to mid-twenties, they said, do you know, it's almost everybody. But they said, we're going to stay. The joy, which always contrasts with the sadness, came out. And they said it with real joy. One said, well, my parents are here. So with a beautiful smile on his face, he said, so, so of course I'll stay. And another said, I'm, I'm trained to be a doctor and I want to be a doctor to the people here in, in Jordan. So I'm staying. And so you get this interplay of joy and sadness all the time. I think as well, one of the key takeaways for me is the fact that Caritas are doing absolutely wonderful work to welcome refugees, but they're feeling um, under-resourced and they're feeling that there have been so many waves of different refugee needs that they're not getting as much resource as they did. And in the parishes, a dominant theme was how many of the parishioners are really poor. So there is a lot of poverty here as well. So if I take away an image of welcome, of joy, but also sadness, and also one of, uh, of poverty, actually, of Jordan being a place that has been extraordinarily generous in its welcome, but is feeling stretched and um, is beginning to feel uh, a shortage of resources. I would also want to say very forcibly that, again on the positive, that I feel that um, Jordanian people have an instinct for treating their fellow human being with dignity. This came to me forcibly when I was asking the bishop, who is the vicar for this part of the Holy Land, for Jordan, I said to him, why is Jordan so generous towards refugees? And he said, well, it's because we're always generous towards the stranger. And he said it with a, a beautiful smile on his face. And then when I probed a little further, in the light of what we'd heard from Caritas and from in the light of what I'd heard about the poverty already in the indigenous population. He said, well, yes, uh, we have real difficulties because there's 25% unemployment. We heard that there's 50% unemployment among young adults, young people in Jordan. And he said, Jordan's very, very short of water. But then he said, and that beautiful smile came back, he said, but somehow we manage. Somehow we manage to welcome all these people. And, you know, what struck me um, as I reflected, as I came away from that conversation, was reflecting on the dignity with which Jordanian people welcome everybody who comes to them, and welcome particularly those in need, was how it really contrasts with the lack of dignity that we've seen, and which was actually highlighted 
in the Advent message of local ordinaries for the Holy Land when they were talking about the indignity that comes with the upsurge of violence on the West Bank in recent months, with the growth of illegal settlements, with the fact that there's been the highest Palestinian death toll in 20 years. So the contrast is very, very marked, actually. And as I stand back from all of that and as I prepare to pack my bags to go back home, something that comes to me very forcibly, really, is that countries with plenty, I don't just mean our country, but the countries that we've represented in this Holy Land coordination, countries with plenty need to try to find ways of sharing some of their plenty with a country like Jordan, which is doing everything it can with utmost generosity to welcome those who are in much greater need than they are themselves. And also, let's face it, countries with plenty need to ask themselves, can we not take some of the refugees which Jordan has given shelter to? So I come away deeply impressed by Jordan, deeply impressed by the people of Jordan, deeply impressed by the quality of welcome that we've experienced here and which they they show to others. And the word that I will take away in my heart will be, what dignity? Well, Jordan, Jordanian Christians, and of course the generous and dignified response to a number of refugee crises have clearly made a deep impression on Bishop Nicholas Hudson, the new chair of the Holy Land Coordination. That coordination is an annual visit of prayer, pilgrimage and persuasion made by bishops from around the world to the lands of Christ's birth, ministry, death and resurrection. The other voice you heard there asking the questions was Leah Molmark, our senior policy and research analyst specialising in international affairs. Right, that's just about it for January's At the Foot of the Cross. You can stay abreast of all the latest news, features, podcasts like this, and events, of course, here at the Secretariat of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Do that by visiting www.catholicchurch.org.uk or cbcew.org.uk goes to the same place. So for now, stay warm, stay safe, and we'll be back with you in February. Bye for now.